Hello and welcome to RT Radio 1's The Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Nick This episode is dedicated to singer Sean Tyrrell, who died recently. Sean Tyrrell's was a courageous, imaginative and creative voice in Irish music. From the release of his debut album Cry of a Dreamer in 1994, he was always inventing and exploring with his music. He was the man who took Brian Merriman's Court and Vaniha or The Midnight Court and set it to music. He was especially interested in poetry and in the connections between poetry and music and that comes across in the Midnight Court work as well as songs that drew on the poetry of Michael Hartnett, Francis Ledwidge and others. In 2009 he released an album called Message of Peace which was inspired by the 19th century activist and writer John Boyle O'Reilly and you'll hear Sean himself talk about his interest in John Boyle O'Reilly shortly. But it wasn't all about poetry either. He was a multi-instrumentalist who recorded tunes with lots of musicians, including Davy Spillane, Kevin Glacken and Ronan Brown. And then, of course, there was the voice, a gorgeous voice, a storytelling voice, which he used to perfection. In 2006, I had the privilege of visiting Sean Tyrrell in his house in County Clare and talking to him about songs and about his musical life. And this is the interview you'll hear now in tribute to the late Sean Tyrrell. Only for a moment, then off once again. Off to some city, now blind in the womb. Off to another ear that's in the tomb. Time your gypsy man, will you not stay? Or to be a caravan just for one day? Or to be a caravan just for one day? Just for one day? That was a song called Time You Old Gypsy Man and that was the first poem that uh, you put to music in the 1970s, I think, Sean. Where did that poem come from? Well, I don't know what sort of, I don't know what book I found it in Aoife, to be quite honest with you, but uh, when I saw it, the lyric itself suggests music in a way, and uh, I set it to music, and I had it as part of the repertoire, and then it fell out of the repertoire for years and years and years, and a very good friend of mine called Tom Dahill, who's an American fellow, but was, in the, was on the first recording I ever made in, with a band called Apples in Winter in America, and he kept asking me, he says, do you ever do that anymore? And I said, no, and then I began to, but all I could remember was one verse, so I, to a poet friend of mine in Galway, um, Maya Cannon, thank you very much. I told Maya of my plight and to maybe the wonders of Google and the internet, I don't know, but she found it for me. So uh, I relearned it. And the second time I, I, I had a different tune for it. It was a different, different time for me, so I had a different tune. So it was kind of nice and I, I love it. I love it. I love the sentiment of it. Well, we are going to talk about poetry later later on in the programme, but just to go back a little bit, um, we're in Clare now, but you grew up in Galway, isn't that right? Was there a lot of music in the house? Neither my mother, there, nobody on either side of either family played music, but my mother and father had a great interest in traditional music, and in particular what you were just talking about before. The two things that could bump the rosary in my house were Kiron McMahona and the Shanachie Eamon Kelly. So I grew up listening to both of those, and I have tremendous admiration, uh, I mean, of both of them, and I'm so honoured that, in fact, Kieran was one of the uh, presenters in RT that actually played my music more often than anybody else, and I was so honoured that he took a liking to it. They, neither my mother or father played music, but my father could sing, good singer, sort of kind of the Irish tenor style, and good set dancer. 
But um, he bought me a six-string guitar, which I never even learned to tune on a mind to play. I don't think I ever... Then he gave me a, a scale, taught me a scale on a harmonica. And then uh, that was it until my brother, TJ, got rest and brought home an album of the Dubliners. And I'd always been fascinated by two brothers who came to Galway called the Duns. They were travellers that used to always play at the Galway races just outside the GBC. Two blind musicians. And I, one of them played banjo, one played the fiddle. And I was always fascinated by the banjo. And then when I heard Bernie McKenna on the Dubliners, I said, that's what I want. So eventually, after much persuasion, because he said, well, I bought you a guitar once you didn't even learn, I went down with Bowmaker with the people at the time. It was called the Kathleen Mavorning, which you pound down or ten pound down on the rest later. He co-signed for it in Rafteries in, in, in Galway, and uh, I bought my first banjo. And uh, it was like jumping into the deep end of a pool. I just absolutely smitten the minute I started. I, I must have been an absolute horror to be around because I wouldn't leave it out of my hand from morning until night. And it just, I still, it's still my, fav- my first love, even though I play all sorts of different instruments now, but, but uh, the banjo, tenor banjo is still my, my, my first love. I keep saying that the banjo is basically a drum with strings in it. And rhythm is, to me, is the essence of it all, really, uh, especially in traditional music, because that's what a lot of things, a lot of... I'm very... I, there hasn't been much music, I've recorded music, traditional music of late, that has interested me, simply because I think for quite a long time, traditional musicians are mistaken. Speed for rhythm. And like, I mean, the, uh, to me, the man who sort of uh, epitomised the other option or the other way of playing was Joe Cooley. That sort of thing, drive from behind rather than, you know, it's like just... And uh, the, the uh, banjo has that, you know, if to do it right, to do it right. It's not about that. It's, it is about the left, left hand as well, but mainly it's getting that rhythm, rhythm right. Like, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's the cornerstone of it for me, you know. And it has influenced the other instruments that I play as well as a result, you know, very much so. You mentioned Joe Cooley. Did you meet Joe Cooley? Yeah, I had three glorious days with that man in San Francisco. Um, I taught for a year in Belfast. And a friend of mine that I was in the first group I was ever in in Galway was a group called the Freedom Folk when we were in college in Galway University. And Jack, my good friend, Geary, who taught me my first stumbling lessons on a banjo, actually, as well. He was going off to America. I was teaching in Belfast, and I said, OK. I handed him my notice, says, I'm going with you. So we began what I call touring the, uh, the corned beef and cabbage circuit of America, Irish bears. And Jesse Owens, who was a big name at the time, and himself and Anne Byrne had a big hit, one of the big folk hits, The Butcher Boy, many, many years ago, long before your time, he had got an offer of a gig in San Francisco 
for St. Patrick's Day and couldn't do it. And he asked us, would we do it? And it was great money. It was like 1500 or $2,000, which is amazing money. Even now it would be great money. And fly out, all accommodation, everything like that. And the poster on the window in Harrington's in Jones Street was like uh, written in marker biro. And about six, up the top was the Freedom Folk direct from New York City live, blah, blah, blah. And about six or seven down the line was the name Joe Cooley, my idol in life at the time. I'd never, I had, all I'd heard was about him. And the things I kept hearing about him was his own style, and it was sort of melancholic, the music was, that was melancholy and, and style, his own style. I was, I was, what is this thing they're talking about? So um, we went into Harrington sitting at the bar as Joe. So um, we were, naturally enough, we were the headline act, so we were on the last. But when Joe went up for to do his pieces, his mushy pieces, wouldn't Sean Terrell and Jack Geary come up and play with me? What could we? I do. I'm getting a command from the High King. I'm being asked to join. So up we go and, and, and um, played with him. And uh, just one little story of the next day, at the end of the day anyway, he said the next day he was going to play for an, at an old people's home in, in San Francisco. And he says, he used to call me Turtle. He says, Turtle, would you uh, come out and play me? He says, there's no money out of it. I says, Joe, I said, there's no money. You know, I'd, I'd have crossed the Alps with this man in bare feet. And uh, we went out there anyway. And so Jack and Joe and myself sit down and we start playing a couple of reels. And he leads down the accordion and he nudged me and he says, Turtle, he says, keep it going. So we keep on playing. And he went over and he went, the oldest woman in the place looked like, he says, Mom, he says, will you dance? And her face, I swear to God, if it lit up like a thousand watt bulb, and with that, the whole room. I'm sitting there, I said, what sort of a... This is what music is about, you know. He's, ah. Oh. I mean, I didn't, I never learned directly any tunes from the, either from his recordings or from him. But what I learned in three days from him, himself and Kevin Keegan, another great box player that lived in San Francisco that I met out there as well. What I learned from the two of them was... I call it I call it the philosophy of the music because that's a thing that's lost these days. There's great technique, but there's there's an awful lack of soul, and by God, had they that in abundance, you know, they had it in abundance. How how long did you spend out there between New York and San Francisco? Three days in America. I don't know. I'd say maybe about six or seven years. It must have been. I'd say about seven, maybe seven years in all. I spent out there. And why did you come back? Why did I come back? Well, Jack and I, we recorded an album, put together a group called Apples in Winter. And we, the first set of gigs we ever did, the band were against one wall. I was on my own against the, on the other side. Because it was, a, it was, I was not prepared to compromise. They were prepared to play anything the audience wanted to hear. I just wasn't. And I just, so we split apart. But Jack, who was my partner, stayed with the band. I found myself on my own. So we split apart. And, um, I was proceeded to try and do it on my solo, and I just got I got fed up of it. I just got said I I began to feel I was a bit of a fake, to be honest. So I said I was going to come back and really basically uh, learn, you know, just become a musician, and uh, I don't regret it. I don't know whether I've become that musician, but at least I made it an attempt. I tried, you know. So that was it. I got fed up, and then I I was I was married at that time and had a four year old child and Benji and um, I came back after being three weeks away somewhere doing in Washington or wherever and he didn't know me or he was a, not so much he didn't know me but he was very strange I thought oh what's this so it was mainly for family reasons you know for that reason I quit but plus the fact that I wanted a 
you know. So I came back here and I did everything else, anything but play music professionally. I was a fisherman, I was a milkman, I was a nearly, I was a postman, you name it. So I, I realised that no matter how much people, you know, when you're doing gigs and you're great, this, that and the other, but I, I wasn't happy with what I was doing. So I decided, well, I wasn't happy also with the fact that of what happened with my son, you know, so that was paramount. That was the big thing. The music was just another thing at the bottom of it, but it was there. I just, but I, when I came back, I just immersed myself in, 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 in learning. I didn't, I play in sessions, but I never, I wouldn't play professionally. In fact, I was offered gigs and I refused. I went over and I played for nothing, but I wouldn't accept money. I just was so, I blank. I says, no, don't want that anymore. I was as simple as that. And, uh, and I was, I was happy that I did that because it, you know, then I, I got the urge to go back again, you know, and I'm back at it again. <laughs> Spent a long time on in the underbelly, I call it, you know. Are there songs, or is there a song in particular that that reminds you of that time in America or that time before you stopped playing for a while? Oh yeah, there's one song that has remained out of that of that period that I would have been singing, I think, which is Mild Mountain Time, which is the one record, you know, first recorded by the the the, the famous. Um, McPeak family. I loved it at that stage, always did, and it has remained with me in the repertoire ever since. Eventually, the, a job came from the university, which is, again, running the two research stations, one up in Carron and one over here in Finnevara. So I applied for that. And I got it, and I was delighted because it was here, because then I, I was where I wanted to be, surrounded by music. You know, OK, the language wasn't here, but the music was here. So that was one of the great finds of my life, because I remember walking out in Carron one time with a good friend of mine, and I remember just saying, Mick, and I finally found the spiritual homeland. I'm finally at home. I finally have it. And I, I, I love it. I adore this, this place. The neighbours of, you know, Chris Thronian, the great concertina players, is just across the bay. Martin Mike Fanny, another great concertina. The two of his daughter and himself, and Francis and Chris, and they're all with Tom Hegarty up here. He used to play with the Kilfenora fiddle player. You know, then all the thing back around Kinvara, then Tony Lennan and Cora Finnis was just... Tommy people so much more. Got Michael Russell, Gussie, you know, it was McLean Conlon, I mean, good God, was <laughs> surrounded by music, surrounded by the best of it, you know. It's like, it's like living in a treasure trove. Oh, precisely it, believe me, believe me, it was a treasure trove, you know. So after quite a long gap then, I suppose. A long gap, yeah. Yeah, how long was the gap then before you made your first album? And, and how did the first album then come into being? 19, I think it was 92 or thereabouts, or 93. Um... Oh yeah, well how it came about I, I, I was baking bread one night yeast bread and I was waiting between what I called the first and the second rise and John Lobron, a friend of mine that I had met in Liston Verna when I was playing there I began playing professionally after my first family wife and I split up she went back to she's American born she went back to America with my kids and I was on my own in Karen so now I had okay that reason didn't exist for me so you know went into the bar and I began to drink too much to be quite honest and not only drink but other things as well so uh, 
I got an offer of doing playing in the Roadside Tavern in Listoon Verna um, with Mickling Conlon, one of the great geniuses also I met in my life. So John Rubin was over visiting me. He was working in the bar in the roadside and he took down a thousand years of Irish poetry that was sitting, gathering dust on a shelf. He left it on the rocking chair beside the fire. I picked it up, leafing through the contents. I think I nearly certain the first one that caught my music or caught my eye was bagpipe music by Louis McNeese, a poem from Louis McNeese, the great northern poet. And it's hilarious. And of course, com- I love comic songs. In fact, someday I'm going to do a, a show of just singing comic songs for an hour and a half to whatever, two hours I could do, cover a whole two hours. But this, I got, I, God, this is right my alley, set it to music. And next thing, message a piece by John Byle O'Reilly, only from day to day, cry of a dreamer, shadow hunter, like it was like, within a three quarters of an hour, I'd written out the titles on a page of about bad luck to the march and I could go on, you know, to, you had your set list. The, the album, the set list, but nobody else had these. And this was the thing that put me off songs that I couldn't find songs that I could, because, you know, Thor McCree, Mick Flynn, Milton Malby, definitive version. Why Sean Tyrrell bother with it? Because, you know, it's been done. Liam Weldon, Dark well, I eventually touched, took on that one. But would, again, Liam's dark, uh, Blue Terror Road, Mick Flynn, Milton Malby, why bother Sean? You know, it's been done. So, I found all of these amazing lyrics. And in fact, as it so turned out, one of them I found in there was called the Tipperary Boys. I sang it up in Karen one night and Michael Russell was there. And Michael turned on to me and says, Fetch on, he says, I heard that to a different tune. So what I was doing, Aoife, was actually, because Charles Lever, who wrote Bad Luck to the Marching, was a songwriter. Three of his poems are set to music. He was a songwriter. All I was doing was bringing some of these poems, originally songs, I brought back in. To the singing tradition so ha, with all of that what then because i began singing them in the roadside tavern so all of a sudden there was this buzz around because people like paddy williams who's a great friend of mine and used to be involved in the singers club in galway himself and mike donahue god rest him they used to come into the sessions and of course they'd hear a different one of these every night and they'd say where'd you get that and all of a sudden I'd, oh, oh, oh i have something special here because if these two are talking about it so I eventually got asked to sing in the Singers Club in Galway. So then through that came Johnny Kane, and uh, used to be the headmaster in Kilfenora, gave a tape. I don't know who that tape, how it got made, gave it to PJ Curtis. So then the whole that whole thing started showing you should make a record. So then a friend with Jimmy Brick, who went out and sort of raised the money, basically, to do the album. So that's basically how it happened. But it was a result, I'd say, of finding the Thousand Years of Irish Poetry that night. So... That's how Cry of a Dreamer, the first one, came about. You know? It must have been a huge kind of release after a long time of not playing and just listening and practising and getting better and better and then discovering these things to finally put it all down and get it out, get, get it out there, get back into it. Well, yeah, in a way, if it, if the sense was that I've seen, well, for, I actually was saying to myself, what's the point in having all of this? Yeah. What's about these great songs? I re- And it, was, it wasn't selfish, it was unselfish in a way, because I keep telling people when they compliment me, this, that and the other, I'm only the reporter. I am really basically only the reporter. I'm reporting on all of these people. And it was because of that that I said to myself, what's the point? Why, well, you know, you have to, people have to hear these. They're so good. Like the song for the 12th of July by John, Fr- 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 Jean, John Fraser. I mean, one of the most beautiful 
I, you know, it's the idea of the. It's all I look at it as 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 the uh, as the daffodil, the orange head, the green stem, the north. It's a beautiful love poem. Our bad luck to the marching by Charles Lever, which is one of the best anti-war statements I've ever heard, with a sense of humour. You know, message of peace by John Byler Riley. Jesus. So. There was that in it, and then at the time I was playing a lot of music with Michelle Bonamy and Shane Holden, who were great for, and they were the engine room that created the style I have today. Shane is unfortunately no longer with us, but great guitar, he had a very sympathetic way of playing with me. He was unique in his, in his approach to guitar playing, and Michelle and his backing on flute or whatever he'd have. So they were the, the midwives, in a way, of all of the, the beginnings of that. They helped me to forge the style that was able to deliver them songs. Come pledge again your heart in your hand One grasp that never will sever Our past would be our native land Our motto, love forever And let the orange lily Badge my patriot brother It's the everlasting green for me All of your albums include poems and uh, are music set to poetry and we'll talk about some of them some of them later on but the longest one probably is, is Brian Merriman's The Midnight Court Can you tell me sort of what drew you to that work in the first place? Well again I was living in Killarney in the youth hostel and similar of the hostlers he or she, whoever it was, left it behind. And it was a sort of place where people left their books and they knew the hostlers coming in could then pick them up and uh, play them or read them. So I found it or I read it. And I didn't, as I said, David Marcus's translation, I nearly, guys, is good God. Because all I could remember was, you know, booking on my shoe, and and that the first, whatever, that's all the verse we learned in school. And I've never realised. So this what was behind all of this. So I thought, good God, this is hilarious. And I immediately saw, because it's written, I mean, I only found out later that Brian Merriman was an accomplished fiddle player. So he was probably writing to the rhythm of music. So, I, and I, I'd been, because I, I love comic songs, I always did. I told, I said earlier on, someday I'm going to put on a whole night of just comic songs. Because I have, I keep, I, I, I am absolutely bowled over when I get a new one. Uh, and, I said, good God, I'll, I'll um, just rakes them in here. Just before you go on, to just just to give people a gist of, like, this is, the, I mean, The Midnight Court was written 200 years ago. And give, just give a brief outline of the story, say, for somebody who hasn't read it. Well, so it's... they know where you're... Where the you're po- the Merry Man is out by the shores of Loch Rainey. He falls asleep, lays down, he falls asleep, and he dreams. It's a nightmare. Or is it a nightmare? Is it reality? Isn't it? That's your own decision. And he... That wakes up this hag is standing over him demanding that he go off to the court in Fecal the midnight court in which men are accused by her representing women I suppose that we're not performing our sexual duties as good well as we should or, so there's all this thing and the women accuse the men of this that the men accuse the women of being whores and you know layabouts and you know but in the end it's the women the victory is is for the women and what I loved about it is that it's it's so lovely balanced that you, you know man makes the attack, the woman comes back, 
there's another and it's just like it's like the sparing match that goes on all night long and in fact when we put it on in the Druid for the first time in, in, in Galway during the Arts Festival <laughs> a woman's shoe hit me on the shoulder one night and another night this condom like like a parachute floated down, I swear I'm not down under the sea there was nights when it actually we had to stop it there was because we um, well I, I when I went to Melissa Stafford I said there's only two things that first I wanted to cast it myself because I want singers that can possibly act rather than the other way around grand the second thing I asked for uh, was I wanted to segregate the audience men on one side women on the other like the church and the old dance hall right so to make the, the battle and it was hilarious like because first there was a night in there where one woman didn't want to separate from her two and the rest of the audience like heckled her come on get into this and there was nights when actually there used to be nearly this row between the other men and women it was great fun it's, it's just a hilarious piece of fun and but at the same time it's not just fun, there's political satire in there, you know, there's farms are bankrupt, freedom's banned, no law or leader in the land, our country's raped and locked the coward shuns a virgin, that's deflowered, far afield our men are shipped, while by grabbing hands she's stripped, and as powerless all we, we watch, all her beauty they debauch. And it goes on like a, a plea for, for, you know, the celibacy thing, then there's, it's timeless like, you know, 250 years ago, last year he died. And still and all, things that he was writing about in there in that time were as... Like, that's the thing with like John Boyle O'Reilly that I think is just so amazing that there's things in there that no matter when we talk about... Because as I keep saying, it's the same man-woman situation you have anywhere on the planet. So it's understood by any nationality or culture, really, in a way, you know. OK, well, let's, let's hear a little track from it. Could you introduce this track for me? It's... it's, it's Second. Yeah, th- this is the one I think I, everyone I was into is the court considers the country's crisis where he says the court considers the country's crisis and what do you think its main advice is this, unless there's a spurt in procreation we can bid goodbye to the Irish nation. The court considers the country's crisis what do you think its main advice is that unless there's a spurt in procreation we can bid goodbye to the Irish nation. It's growing smaller year by year Don't pretend that's not your affair Between death, war, ruin and pillage The land is like a deserted village Our best are banished But you, you slob Have you ever hammered a single job? What use are you? John Boyle O'Reilly was you found his poetry in that thousand years of Irish poetry mm-hmm. and now you're kind of embarking on on a bigger project about him but who who was he tell me a little bit about him well he was born in Douth just outside of Drogheda in 1844 June 28th his father was a headmaster of a place called the Netterville Institute mother Eliza was an amazing woman by all accounts and she was a very big influence in his life so he at 11 years of age, he had to give up his education, which is astounding what he went on to do afterwards. But his brother was apprenticed to a paper called the Argus newspaper in Drogheda. And he fell ill and he couldn't fulfil his apprenticeship, which meant that the family would have to give back the 50 guineas or whatever it was, which they could ill afford. So he says, I'll take his place. He went and he worked in England in the Garja newspaper after that. And naturally enough, the 1840s famine and all of that that followed and him hearing the stories of, you know, the hardship and poverty and, and starvation and death and destruction that fo- that followed it. Uh, he was politicised, came back to Ireland. He joined the English or the 
First, he joined the Fenian movement. No, he joined the English cavalry and he was inducted or sworn into the Fenian movement by John Devoy. And his job was to enlist any of the sympathetic, because a third of the English army at the time in Ireland was composed of Irish people, Irishmen. So their job's idea was to take over key barracks around the country, instigate a general rebellion. But an informer was planted, Irishman, of course, and uh, sold out. He was sentenced to death, but that was later commuted to life, a penal servitude for life, started in Millbank in London and then to Dartmouth, Dartmoor, and uh, was from there transported to the penal colony in Australia. He got a job in the library in the penal colony. Then he asked to be transferred to the, out to the road gangsters' intention to escape and nearly got killed. On, it was on a whaling ship, an American whaling ship he escaped called the Gazelle. Nearly got killed and insisted on going out on, the, on a whale hunt. Landed in America, got a job with the pilot newspaper, which is still in existence today in America. Became eventually its co-owner and uh, was a champion of as a Native American rights uh, was one thing when there was a horrific massacre in Carrollton, Mississippi of black people he spoke at the Black Baptist Church in Phillips Street in Boston and another one in Barnwell in South Carolina shortly after that and he wrote in the paper he says unless the black man in the South learns to defend himself first by law but by manly force in the extremity he'll be exterminated like the black man in Tasmania he'd be locked up in Guantanamo Bay today if he was to write that and he's talking, he's talking about it it's close to arm, you look. So, I mean, it's astounding. As I say in the piece, you know, it's just, we all thought the civil rights movement began with the, you know, the waning of the, the flowers, the blooming of the flowers in the 60s, and Pete Seeger and Dylan and Baez were among the first white kind of spokespeople. But this man was saying it when, and, you know, it was against the tide. He spoke out against anti-Semitism. He fascinates me totally. I mean, I've, I say at the end of it, and I, I genuinely mean that he's the greatest Irishman, in my opinion, that ever lived. And if I had the power of resurrection, he would be number one, I would say. Bring him back. We need him right now. So I'm, I, 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 I just, of all, uh, you know, and he, of all the things, he's the ones that sleep. Everybody knows Francis Maher. Everybody knows Michelin, Devoy, you know, whoever has. But you never hear talk of the, And he was the, he was the thinker. And I have a teacher, so, you know, I went to, through third level education I got a BA HD I taught I studied history never heard his name until I went to a touring America Springfield Massachusetts there's a club named after him John Boyle O'Reilly I thought what a strange name no clue who he was I often wonder I often wonder is he inhabiting me to yeah. be honest with you I'm seriously because sometimes I believe it you know but well, I didn't it's a nice habitation if it is to be honest with you you've recorded three of his songs so if we were to play one which one would you like to hear for what's going on right now in the world, a message of peace. Because when I first sang this publicly, or among the first times in this tune, there was a very good friend of mine, unfortunately another one that's no longer with us. There seems to be a lot of this in this interview. Uh, Bobby Romanowski. And uh, he had two middle-aged American nuns with him. And they were staying with me and Karen when I was living up there. And they, I sang it in the roadside tavern that night. And one of them, we got back to the house having a cup of tea. She says, when did you write the song about Ronald Reagan? I says, oh, oh, no, this is long before Ronnie was even, you know, and it could be any politician. There once was a pirate greedy and bold Who ravaged for gain and he saved the spoils 
Till his coffers were bursting with bloodstained gold And millions of captives bore his toils Then fear took hold of him and he cried I've gathered enough now, war should cease And he sent out messengers far and wide To the strong ones only to ask for peace We are Christian brethren, thus he spake Let's seal a contract never to fight Except against rebels who dare to break The bonds we have made by the victor's right I gave up worrying about what people were going to think I did for a while and, uh, and then I gave up saying Okay, look if you have faith enough in it yourself, Sean, do it. And if it doesn't, and I, like in most cases, I think people accept it. And, you know, I think definitely there's romanticism in there. And I, I, there's nothing romance with romance. There's nothing wrong with it. A little bit of cynicism in these days, you need it. A healthy dose of both, you know. And, and you know, um, I try to explore all things. As you said, I, you know, I've a whole show that I love to put on in just comic songs. You know, some of them are darkly comics, some of them are not, you know, but I think it's it's important that uh, all sort of emotions be expressed, you know, that's the way I like it. Well, Sean, that's three projects, the comic song project, the John Boyd O'Reilly project and the Midnight Court project. I have enough time in life to do them all. But anyway, <laughs> well, yeah. we look forward to them and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. It's getting dark in here now and... We're hitting dusk, so Sean Tyrrell, thank you very, very much. You're welcome. South of the border, down Mexico way. That's where I fell in love, the stars above they came out to play. Now as I wander, my thoughts ever stray. South of the border, down Mexico way. She was a picture in old Spanish lace. Then for a tender while I kissed the smile upon her face. And thanks for listening to the Rolling Wave podcast. For rights reasons, the music here is shorter than in the original broadcast. So if you'd like to hear the full versions of the songs, you can go to rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash the rolling wave and that program was first broadcast on the 21st of november 2021 till the next time gramila mahagi agaslan